This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 69 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Peter Fines. Peter and I spoke last year about his book Footnotes, which was shortlisted for the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year. Now he's back with a new book called A Thing of Beauty, Travels Through Mythical and Modern Greece. In addition to introducing us to his new book, we talk about Lord Byron, ideas of hope in Greek myth, and working on a travel book in the midst of the pandemic. As you'll hear, he was able to slip into Greece for a brief period when lockdowns were lifted. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say that while the show is free, a lot of work goes into it. Please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a five-star review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. And finally, if you're interested in getting my free monthly roundup of travel writing news delivered to your inbox in a newsletter I call Genius Loci, visit jeremybassetti.com to sign up. A new issue will arrive on the first of the month. As ever, thanks for listening. So now, here is Peter Fines. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So last time we spoke, I think it was back in March 2020 for your previous book, Footsteps, you mentioned that you had a, a Greek book in the works, uh, a book on Greece in the works, uh, but you're a little bit tight-lipped about it. And yes. uh, now your, your, your book is uh, slated to come out in October of 2021. So maybe now's a good time that you can tell us a little bit more about this uh, new book of yours, which is called A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece. Yes, thank you. I didn't mean to be entirely tight-lipped about it. <laughs> I was um, probably not quite sure what was going to be in it. Uh, it happened quite fast, actually. I knew I wanted to write about Greece, and I knew I wanted to write about the Greek myths. Uh, but of course, when we spoke last time about footnotes, uh, I was just, um, you know, things were about to change dramatically for all of us. Uh, the pandemic was kind of coming towards us fast. We weren't quite sure what it was all about. And, and I, I'd been commissioned to write this book. And uh, what I wanted to do was travel around Greece on the trail of the myths. So I wanted to visit as many of the ancient sites as I could and see places where the myths actually emerged and get a feeling for what was still there. And also I was interested to know if they still had anything to say to us, those amazing ancient stories. So um, I then spent the next nine months or however long it is uh, reading steeped in even more myths and books about ancient Greece, trying to get to Greece, but of course I couldn't. So in the end, I didn't get to Greece till October of November, November last year. Uh, and then rushed home and, and wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So where did this book take you in, in Greece exactly? Did you, Athens, Mount Olympia? Certainly, 
straight into Athens. Mm -hmm. I went to Corinth because there's some amazingness based there. I went to a place just outside Corinth called Sikion, where I was trying to find the place where the Greeks believed the first people had been formed out of clay, or so they said. Uh, and um, so I went there. I thought that might also be the place where Pandora's box or Pandora's jar, um, where that happened. Uh, I went to Mycenae, went to Sunion. I uh, traveled all around the Peloponnese, went to Olympia, of course, and then ended up getting dragged further north and west uh, up to um, Epirus because uh, I wanted to see the forests there and the hills. And also I became very interested um, in uh, the oil and gas exploration that has been slated for that area because the Greek government is essentially bankrupt. Uh, they've sold off all sorts of rights for um, oil exploitation, uh, including across most of the national parks. It's a huge scandal. Uh, and so I wanted to go and meet some of the activists who were fighting that. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a quite quite an adventure. Um, and I want to circle back to these uh, climate issues that you're kind of alluding to here in a bit. Mm. Um, but before we go there, um, you mentioned that you knew you wanted to write about Greece. Um, and interestingly, uh, your book begins with a chapter or a discussion of, of Lord Byron. And he's, of course, one of the um, figureheads of the Philhellenism movement, you know, the lovers yes. of Greek culture in, in, in Britain. And and I was wondering if you could like help us understand a little bit about the the British love or the British admiration for for Greek culture, perhaps in the context of Byron or, I don't know, worse, Lord Elgin. Who <laughs> <laughs> Byron denounced Lord Elgin. When, he, when Byron got to Athens, uh, traveling around as a, as a very, very young man, he arrived just after Lord Elgin had stripped <laughs> Uh, the Parthenon of its marbles and shipped them back to London. And he was he was denounced by Byron in, in his poem, Child Harold, which made Byron famous overnight, as he said. He woke up one morning and found himself famous. Um, yeah, Byron was obsessed with Greece. And in fact, from a very young age, it surprised me to know that I thought he'd come to it later, but he went to Greece uh, essentially on a kind of uh, Byronic gap year where he was uh, exploring Greece, but most of all, he was... Uh, in hot pursuit of as many young uh, Greek youths as he could find. <laughs> he spent a year and a half traveling in Greece with his, uh, he sent everyone home. He was with a friend uh, who went home, perhaps fed up with him. And then uh, he sent his servant home who was grumbling. So it said, like all British people, all he wanted was beef and beer and had no interest in what was around him. So he sent him home as well. So he could um, <laughs> spend more unfettered time amongst the Greek youths. Uh, yeah, Greeks. Uh, I, I became obsessed with Byron, of course, because uh, because of his obsession with Greece and the fact that he died there fighting for Greek independence uh, without actually fighting, but he died of a fever before he could get fully engaged. Uh, so I found myself sitting in Byron's, the gardens of Byron's home, which is Newstead Abbey. He inherited them when he was about eight, uh, not realising he was going to be a lord until then. And uh, uh, they're beautiful, his gardens, absolutely beautiful. and. Um, it was September last year, and I found myself, because the pandemic was raging, I found myself sitting in these wonderful gardens thinking about Byron and thinking about um, all the various things that are troubling us about the world and making myself rather a grim list. And I thought, well, if I can't start with anyone, I should surely, you know, Byron's the best person to start with, uh, because I wanted to see if I could go to Greece like him and find hope. Um, so, he's a, he, yeah, he was obsessed all his life. He also had this belief, because as uh, 
Byron's oak is uh, his oak tree that he actually planted when he was a little boy, age eight, is uh, still there. You can still see it, but it's dead now. It's kind of died quite young for an oak. It's kind of sprawled on the front gardens. And um, he had this belief that as the uh, whatever happened to the oak or the health of the oak would affect him and vice versa, which is in fact a very ancient Greek myth. It's the kind of belief that nymphs live in trees and you know, if their tree dies, they'll die and vice versa. And he seems to have rather, rather harbored this belief, although being Byron, he kind of cast himself as a nymph and uh, dramatized his own life. But um, yeah, so he, he had that belief. And then so I wanted to go to, to Greece and see more of the myths, but mm. through the eyes of Byron initially. Uh, and then I kind of lost track of Byron and then caught up with him later. Right. In, in, in the United States, at least, uh, we have this kind of idea, especially in, in primary and secondary education, that, you know, the, the Greek culture is essentially the cradle of Western civilization. And for that reason, yes. you know, we study, you know, the philosophy, the culture, the architect, you know, the classical world, essentially, as, as part of our, our, our tradition. And I was wondering if that's kind of the same thing in the United Kingdom. And if, if this would have I don't know, compelled Byron to go, I don't know, support the Greeks for... Um, yeah, it, it, that, that was absolutely what drove Byron was, uh, you know, because Greece until he went, essentially just before he went, you know, 30 years before he went, people were starting to go. But Italy had always been the place where people went and, and people were obsessed until that moment with Roman culture. Uh, and then it's only later with Byron and others that they began to realise that there was a big difference between Greek and Roman culture. And the Greeks, Greece was the place where it all was. And so word was coming back to Britain as Byron was growing up. that um, in fact, it was all still there. Everything was there. You know, you could go to Athens and see the Acropolis and you could go to Corinth and see the, you know, everything there as well. And Delphi was still up. And, and of course, people were flooding over and like Elgin, just chiseling statues off and uprooting temple <laughs> temples and just shipping them back to Britain. So um, the, Byron fed that obsession. And, uh, and so I have, you know, I enjoyed looking at Byron's obsession uh, and the sort of all the, you know, all our, uh, I suppose, beliefs that have slightly grown from that about Greece being the centre of everything. Uh, and you can imagine the excitement in those days of, you know, discovering Sparta and, and uh, Troy. Troy was unearthed. All of these things were happening. And, uh, yeah, it's a kind of Western centre, you know, it's where Western civilization started, they often say, but of course it's the reality is much more complicated that, than that. And as I keep saying throughout the book, you know, other versions are available right. because, you know, it, Greece is at the crossroads uh, of many cultures, you know, borrowing from everything, you know, ideas flow across borders. There are no borders when it comes to ideas and, uh, you know, all that stuff. It's the, the academics would argue forever about where ideas come from and, and so on. But um, there's no doubt that Athens in uh, in the fifth century was an extraordinary place. Um, but the ideas that came from there, they, they didn't grow from nowhere. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, quite clear, uh, that this new book, just like your, your previous one is, uh, steeped in kind of literature. You, you referenced, um, you know, you're trying to follow the Greek myths. Uh, you, we're, we're talking now about Byron and, um, also there's another kind of Virgil of of sorts in this book, the Pausanias, his uh, yes. second, second century guidebook, if we can call it that, call it that, the uh, description of Greece. I was wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit about who Pausanias was and what this this uh, book 
was all about the description of Greece that you used. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I should quickly say I'm not a not a Greek expert. I, no. I had an incredible time discovering about all these things and steeping myself in the literature and the culture. But um, Porsenius, I'm embarrassed to say, was pretty new to me. Uh, I spent all my working life in guidebook publishing, and he's uh, probably one of the first guidebook writers. And uh, he was around in the f- second century of the Christian era. He wrote this big, big immense guide to Greece, which is an absolute tangle. You know, if you're a guidebook writer, you'd be horrified because <laughs> everything's in the wrong order. And it just, you know, it just wanders around telling stories and making stuff up. But at the same time, it's, it's an unbelievable record of what was there when he, when he went around. This is, you know, the Roman heyday, the Roman empire, and they've already looted Greece for as much as they can. And, you know, Greece has been, you know, many, many of the monuments have been destroyed, but it's still so much of it is there. And, and they used, Byron and his people who went just before him were using Pausanias, this enormous guidebook, to find ancient relics. It was so accurately written that they could find cities, whole cities would, be, would turn up, they'd go, it, he says it's over this hill and just to the left or whatever, and, and there it would be, you know, 20 foot down, just get digging. And uh, so he's thrilling from that point of view. He's also thrilling for us, I think, uh, I mean, there are really long, boring bits that you want to skip over, but there are also extraordinary stories. Some, many of the myths are in there. And uh, just, uh, yes, if you want to know what happened um, to Greece, how ancient Greek felt um, about religion, you know, but he lived in a time like us when, when things were in flux. There was a huge tumult. Um, you know, Christianity was just getting going. And uh, uh, it's really interesting to read him. And say so he, he has this rather some mournful line saying, uh, you know, the gods are real uh, and they used to walk among us, but they don't do so anymore. Hmm. So it's lovely. Well worth reading. And as a guidebook writer and editor, it's particularly interesting to see how we've all evolved from there. In fact, we might as well all throw away our pens and laptops because <laughs> he did the best first. <laughs> Either, either evolved or, or remained the same. I remember you mentioned yeah, exactly. something in the book about uh, he, he was writing about places <laughs> he didn't visit. <laughs> and, it, and- <laughs> it, it, I, you know, I have a strong suspicion half these places he didn't get to. You can always tell when he's got to a place, like any guy, writer, because he goes into excruciating detail about <laughs> things. And then suddenly he's slightly breezing over, you know, huge temples that he should have, you know, if he'd actually been there. You can see the temple to Poseidon at Sunion and uh, south of Athens, uh, and it's clear he didn't get there because he was frightened of pirates. Mm. So, how, how how heavily did you lean on Pausanias and 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 Byron as kind of guides, not just in country guides, but kind of guides for how this this book evolved? Because you mentioned here, you know, that Byron was interested in this idea of hope, and hope is you know, a, a theme that's front and center in your own, in your own book, your new book. So like, yes. how, how heavily were you leaning on, on these two guides? I was really leaning heavily on Byron at the beginning because I couldn't get to Greece. And so I was with him <laughs> in, in his uh, Newstead Abbey in Nottinghamshire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's interesting anyway, because he, um, he has quite a lot to say about hope. Um, but he's a cynical writer, you know, and, but often he's also a soft-hearted, romantic at heart, and he's all sorts of things. Uh, he's angry and, you know, he's funny. Um, I lent on him quite heavily because, I, as I say, I sat in his gardens, these beautiful gardens, and, and I find myself making this awful list about what was troubling me most about um, the things that are happening to us or that we're doing to the world. And uh, on it went, you know, from climate chaos to plastics to mass extinctions. 
and the fires, of course, that rage in Greece. And I wanted to write about that. Uh, and then I thought, I just actually, this is awful. I just want to go to Greece and see um, if I can find any hope. Um, and then also I wanted to go to Greece and see if the myths would have anything to say about any of this. Um, because they do. And it's, um, I was particularly interested in the, the myth of Pandora, who opens her jar and lets out all the evils of the world and only hope is left under the rim of the jar, although that's what the first author who wrote about it says, but other authors since have said, well, actually hope escaped and you know, it spread hope around the world. And others have said that actually the jar was more like a prison and you know, we can't get at hope. Um, and then there've been further authors, Nietzsche among them, who have said actually hope is an evil. Um, hope is a really interesting subject, but he, Byron was with Nietzsche and he, he ended up predictably saying that, you know, hope is just, um, you know, a bit of paint we put on the face mm. of the world and uh, you need to strip it off and you'll see it for what it really is. And then uh, that might be a, a good thing or maybe we'll all just give up. So anyway, so <laughs> I went on, on the search of hope, quite literally. I wrote to the Oracle at Delphi and asked them if um, they could help me find Pandora's hope. Uh, and I got a reply, excitingly. A lot of Googling later, I've managed to find myself a priest of Apollo who would uh, tell me where to find hope. <laughs> That's interesting, though, that what you mentioned about the the various interpretations of the myth of uh, Pandora, you know, yes. kind of a testament to the ongoing relevancy of of these myths through its various interpretations and how they involve, how they evolve and, and change. And yeah, um, they do. They change all the time. And, you know, our, our readings of the myths are obviously I'm sure completely different to what the earliest audiences were getting. But then of course the myths weren't written down too much later. And when they were written down, mm -hmm. they were written down by different people. They don't have one, there's no one book of myths and there's no one version. So I love that, you know, it's, it's really refreshing actually. They kind of, weave in and out of each other. They're slippery, you know, they're, they're shiny things. And then um, later writers come, come along and make somebody else up. And, you know, the layers, the layers build. And um, we can, you know, we can look into them and find things that others haven't found. And I'm sure our modern interpretations are very different from other people's. And even something so basic as the story of Pandora's jar when all the evils of the world were let out. There's, yes, that fact is pretty constant in all the versions, but everything else is up for grabs. And uh, I really enjoyed that. It meant also as a non-specialist, I could not possibly get anything wrong. I could just keep making it up as it went along <laughs> and it didn't really matter. So uh, they're beautiful, the myths. They really are. And, and um, it's, it's, it's so um, amazing to read them in, in Greece, in the actual places yeah. where they were set or where they emerged. Yeah, you'd mentioned the uh, climate crisis. You've mentioned the fires, and in, in this respect, hope takes on a, you know a special meaning here. But also, you know, as we were talking before we started recording, you know, you you began writing this book uh, during the pandemic, and indeed, you kind of traveled to to, to Greece, you know, during a window of <laughs> liberty that we had uh, that you had during the, the the pandemic. So, I was wondering, like, what type of hope? do these Greek myths offer us um, in the face of the pandemic or, or, or the climate crisis? Like what, what, what kind of hope do they give? Yeah. Well, there's, there's, apart from the myth of Pandora, I suppose the question I find myself asking is that is if, the, if these people, you know, with their extraordinary stories, if they'd had access to our, our technology, is there anything in their beliefs or, or their myths that would have stopped them from doing the things that we've ended up doing 
Uh, is there anything, would, would there, I suppose, be any restraint on, you know, the, the things they wanted to do or exploit or the, or the growth that, that would happen? So, um, yeah, there's hope sort of woven amongst, amongst the myths, but it's kind of, it's sprinkled around. Because, of course, when you look at most myths, they tend to be, you know, sons killing fathers or abductions <laughs> or vile goings on amongst the gods and goddesses. So you have to dig a little bit deeper but I, what I found is that what I, as well as looking in the myths, everyone I met in Greece, I would just ask them about hope because it became my, my particular sort of drive and obsession. And um, you get a, a wonderful collection of answers every time you ask. You get every, the whole range from my taxi driver in Athens, the first person I met in, in Greece who was uh, just like, he looked like Nietzsche. He spoke like Nietzsche. He said, you know, what is hope? It's a worthless thing. And, uh, and you get everything from that to just uh, the most luminous replies, most hopeful replies. And of course, it's a kind of rather degraded word, hope, you know, overused by politicians and right. preachers. But it's a, it's, a, it's a really good thing to go looking for. And, and I found, particularly amongst uh, the activists, um, there's a wonderful group of women activists who are called the Dancing Women of Rissouls, who... Um, operate mostly in Epirus, so they're, and they're fighting against this oil and gas exploration that I've mentioned. And they dress up in traditional costume and sing traditional songs. And because they do that, they manage to sneak their way into kind of annual general meetings of oil companies or politicians' visits, and then they suddenly start protesting and waving banners around. They're absolutely brilliant. And I asked them about hope, of course, and they just laughed at me because I gave them the sort of Nietzsche line, well, you know, hope is you know, potentially an evil, isn't it? They just laughed and said, come on, we've all got to hope. And mm. uh, it was a lovely message. And I get that, get that time and time again in, in Greece because um, it's a land full of hope and it's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place as well. That's interesting. You're you're a specialist in hope now. Maybe <laughs> I am a specialist in hope. Yeah, I think it's something we all. It's been such a desperate time for everyone, and right. uh, you know, everyone said as well, which I was interested in, was you know, the, during that first lockdown when the world went quiet, um, everyone said well, we're going to emerge and we're going to be feeling pretty different about things, and maybe it's given us a chance to connect better with nature. And then, of course, the um, when you know the lockdown ends and we all dived into our cars and started driving off to McDonald's as fast as we could because <laughs> we all missed it so much. And I, I was really interested in that as well. Just what will it really, you know, what, what has changed because of the pandemic? And um, I, th- I met some very hopeful people. Yeah. I'm glad you're bringing up the, the pandemic again um, because many of us, as, as you just, obviously we've been grounded during the pandemic, but, um, and, and our plans and our hopes were, were dashed and, but there you were kind of refusing to let the pandemic stop you from, from completing your work. And of course yes. you, you had that little uh, window of time where the lockdowns uh, opened up, I guess, uh, to go mm. travel and to do your work. But um, I was just wondering if you could have any like advice or, or suggestions for any other writers who um, who are working during the ongoing pandemic and, you know, are facing these kinds of uh, difficulties to get, to get their work done it does affect everything actually there's this sort of dilemma i mean i have dilemmas in my books all the time about how much i include of myself and how much is going to be myths how much is history how much biography of bar and you're kind of treading this line all the time and one of the questions was for myself uh you know how much do i mention the pandemic and covid because uh 
I did feel very lucky to be there. I mean, I was there absolutely legally and uh, it was between lockdowns and I had a commission to go to Greece. So that was a thing. But at the same time, you know, I felt very privileged to be there. And um, when I got there, uh, I mean, Greece was handling the pandemic much better than we were in Britain. I felt like I was arriving from Plague Island where everyone was just kind of <laughs> mashing around together. Uh, in Greece, they were much better organised <clears throat> and everyone was wearing masks and there was hand gel everywhere and it seemed quite refreshing to be there. But there were almost no tourists. It was, it was a really strange time to be there. So I couldn't write a book that was about the normal tourist experience. I mean, I wasn't trying to do that anyway, but I had to, um, uh, you know, I found myself in Epidavros, in the theatre of Epidavros, uh, which is one of the wonders of the world. It's the most beautiful theatre, ancient theatre, the Greek theatre in the Peloponnese, and uh, it's got the most perfect acoustics. And there was a French woman there, I was sitting right at the top, and about seven of us there sitting, uh, and she just stood in the middle of this um, theatre, stone theatre, and dropped what might have been a pin. It was probably a tiny stone, and the sound just rippled up to us and to her little five-year-old daughter sitting at the top as well. Then she started to sing a beautifully choral song. And uh, that's not an experience I'd have had uh, outside of the pandemic. Um, I think, you know, if you're allowed to go and if you can travel carefully, just go. And, you know, but you just can have to ask yourself, how much do I mention it? I don't want to keep banging it on about it. I kept describing it as the first year of COVID when I started (laughs) writing the book because I thought, well, maybe it will be, maybe it won't, but horribly it's not. So, you know, it's just, we don't know where we're going and it's um, obviously we can't all stop. So we, we carry on, but, and I, you know, occasionally I'll mention someone, the taxi driver is wearing a mask or whatever it might be, you know, things when the, the details seem irrelevant. Um, other times I don't think people want to be completely bogged down in, you know, pandemic news. Uh, it's tricky. It's tricky. But I was asking all the, hotel owners and so on, you know, about hope, how are they getting on with life? And um, so that became part of the story as well, as how, you know, how were they reacting to it? I think Greece has had so many hard times um, economically. And then, uh, and then this, it's, it's really, you know, it's so hard for them, but um, incredibly optimistic replies in general. Mm-hmm. We got to be optimistic. I think that's a good, yeah, yeah. good place to, to end here. Uh, Peter, always a pleasure. A thing of beauty, I think, comes out October 21st, uh, 2021. 2021. It does. It does. Whenever you're listening to it. Where can we find you and everything about you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at pfinds. And, uh, and I'm about to rebuild my website, having allowed it to lapse and it's been taken over by some gambling site. So don't go to pfinds.com at the moment. But- <laughs> But hang on in there. It'll, it will be reborn like a phoenix. <laughs> we'll put all those uh, links in the show notes. And maybe by the time this comes out, your your website will be uh, fresh. So. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on again. Thank you so much. Very good to talk to you again. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. 